we read this evening from Matthew 26, beginning at verse 30. The immediately preceding context is that of the last Passover. We, be, we take it up at verse 30 and read through verse 46. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. Then saith Jesus unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. But after I am risen again, I will go before you into Galilee. Peter answered and said unto him, Though all men shall be offended because of thee, yet will I never be offended. Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee that this night... Before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. Peter said unto him, Though I should die with thee, yet will I not deny thee. Likewise also said all the disciples. Then cometh Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane, and saith unto the disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Then saith he unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry ye here, and watch with me. And he went a little farther, and fell on his face, and prayed, saying, O my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And he cometh unto the disciples, and findeth him asleep, and saith unto Peter, What? Could ye not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again the second time, and prayed, saying, O my father, if this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then cometh he to his disciples and saith unto them, Sleep on now and take your rest. Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. Behold, he is at hand that doth betray me. We stop there. The text to which I call your attention is verse 39 of Matthew 26. And he went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. 
The hour was at hand, according to the words of Jesus. It was the hour when the battle of all ages would be fought and decided forever. The hour in which the conflict would be decided that had been announced in paradise some 4,000 years previous. There God had spoken to the serpent the words of promise for his people when he said, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. It was the hour in which God would reveal himself in all his glory as the God of holiness and righteousness, the God of justice and truth, mercy and grace. It was the hour when his kingdom would be established, his people redeemed, and the ungodly world judged and condemned forever. But what an agonizing hour for Jesus. It was the hour in which he would stand all alone, without the help of men or angels, to fight the battle against all the forces of sin and darkness and to bear the eternal wrath of the righteous God. It was the hour wherein the bitter cup of Christ's suffering would have to be emptied by him. In the moment, in the consciousness of that hour, which was just moments away, Jesus entered the Garden of Gethsemane with the purpose of drawing near to his Father in prayer. Jesus prayed, saying, O oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And reflected in those words is the depth of suffering that you and I can never probe. Gethsemane, the moment of Gethsemane is the moment of fearful anticipation of what was to come. There is a terror expressed in this anticipation of what lay before. And that terror is the terror of a loneliness which a mere human soul would be required to endure for eternity the utter loneliness of everlasting separation from God and the desolation of hell. Moreover, there is revealed here in the Garden of Gethsemane an amazing obedience, the depth of which you and I can never fathom. It's an obedience that indeed shrinks with fear before the terrifying prospect of 
an eternal abyss of suffering the wrath of God, but an obedience that is at the same time perfect in its complete and active submission to God's will. Through the tremendous agony of soul seen here in this historical event, the light of our Savior shines upon you who believe. In Gethsemane, we see the mystery of our salvation, the will of the Father and the will of his suffering Son meet to reveal a love unfathomable and a grace greater than all our sin. Let's consider the agony of Gethsemane. We notice, first of all, an oppressive suffering. Secondly, an agonizing prayer. And finally, an inescapable answer. That our Lord Jesus Christ faced an oppressive suffering in Gethsemane is clearly seen by the agony of soul that he experienced in the garden on the western slopes of the Mount of Olives, the garden called Gethsemane. The hour of conflict is now approaching, but it must become clear even then that the time and setting of this conflict will be determined by God himself. The enemies are gathering only to see the details of their plans scattered to the wind. They had conspired to take Jesus secretly and by subtlety. They had decided to wait after the Passover for fear of the people because they still feared an uproar among the people, but the hour was not there. The hour belonged to God. It was the conflict of his dear son, and he alone would determine the place of the battlefield and the hour of the battle. It's quite contrary to the plans of the Jews that they are gathering for the conflict at this late hour. But according to the hand of God, Judas Iscariot appeared before the leaders of the Jews and told them the time had come for him to deliver Jesus into their hand. In the meantime, Jesus leaves the upper room with his disciples and heads toward the place where the conflict must begin. On the border of that garden called Gethsemane, Jesus left eight of his disciples leaving them only with the words, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. And taking Peter, James, and John, the chosen trio, Jesus enters farther into the garden. When he reaches a certain point, he turns to those disciples, and he says, according to the parallel accounts of Mark and Luke, My soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch, and pray that ye enter not into temptation. And then the Savior goes on alone. He goes into the inner sanctuary of his suffering, 
to fight a battle of soul that he alone could fight. It's an unspeakably deep sorrow that presses upon his soul as he proceeds a little farther into the garden, a sorrow which no human, to which no human sorrow can be compared, and which for that very reason we will never be able fully to explain. The sorrow, the amazement, the, the desolation that he experiences in this moment increases with every step. Until he he falls on his face and sweat like great drops of blood is pressed from him. Falls to the ground. In his oppressive suffering of soul and mind and body, he begins to wonder about the possibility of another way of suffering and obedience than the way that lies before him. And he prays, O my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And the very fact that in this hour the Savior implores the Father to give him another way shows the darkness and the oppressiveness of the suffering into which his soul is plunged. It's the suffering cast by the the cross's shadow that grips his soul and darkens the pathway of his consciousness. He speaks of this oppressive suffering as the bitter cup that he must drink. And although our Savior uses a figurative language, there's indeed a cup, the contents of which he alone must drink. And that cup and its contents picture the suffering which he must endure for the glory of God and for the sake of the people given him by the Father. It's the cup of suffering at the hands of the ungodly and unbelieving people of the world. But it's at bottom, the cup of the wrath of the holy God, the cup of which the Lord speaks through his prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 51, the cup of trembling, even the dregs of the cup of my fury. Jesus may not be forced to drink it. He must voluntarily lift that cup and drink its contents. He must assume the role of the sufferer willingly and in perfect obedience to the will of his Father, in love for God with all his heart and soul and mind. He must drink of that cup so it permeates his whole nature and is experienced in every fiber of his existence. Moreover, that figure of a cup pictures a certain measure 
And it refers to the divinely determined measure of the suffering of the cross. The divinely determined eternal measure of Jehovah's wrath. The divinely determined measure according to which the Savior must take to himself and make of his soul an offering for the sins of all his people from the beginning to the end of the world. And if we ask, what is the specific nature of Gethsemane's agony? We may say that in last analysis, it's an incomprehensible mystery. Only in a general way can we say anything about what Scripture reveals concerning this oppressive suffering in Gethsemane. In the first place, Jesus experienced here a suffering of soul. There is no physical violence yet in Gethsemane. The enemies are not yet visible. Their footsteps are not yet heard. All is quiet. And yet Jesus says, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Secondly, as I mentioned earlier, his suffering was the agony of the anticipation of a horrible event the horror of all that lay before him, surrounded his consciousness and began, as it were, to squeeze from him this petition and and to suffocate him in its sorrow. In that frightful moment, he saw the whole terrible reality of all that awaited him. And do you know what that means, beloved? That means he saw the horror of your sins and mine. Our sins pressed out of him the bloody sweat in the garden. Look, you think that some of your sins don't amount to much? Look at this suffering of Jesus. He saw all those sins every one of them pointed him to that cross. And that anticipation of his crucifixion was not merely the anticipation of that physical suffering. It's true, that physical suffering was in itself unspeakably terrible. The beating, the scourging, the crown of thorns pressed into his head the nails being driven through his hands and feet, the weight of his body tearing at those wounds in his hands and feet. But many men have gone through a great deal of intense pain and suffering without ever going through a Gethsemane. But the oppressive suffering felt by Jesus in the garden was that of the anticipation of that death in its deeper, horrible significance. We think death is horrible, but remember, for us, the sting of death has been removed. As terrible as death is, sometimes we easily forget that death for us has been stripped of its power. 
For us who are in Jesus Christ by faith, death is no longer punishment for sin, but the entrance into everlasting glory. For us, death is no longer the guillotine of God's wrath, but the instrument of his love. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. But don't forget, with Christ that was not yet the case. He had to bear the sting of death that we no longer have to bear. He had to face death as the execution of God's wrath. And he did so as the holy and righteous God, the Son of God, over whom death had no right. The sting of death for him was the guilt of sin of our sins. It was that anticipation that made Gethsemane what it was. As Jesus falls on his face to the ground, we see in him that Gethsemane is the anticipation of hell. All the agonies of hell he would have to endure. His heavenly Father would pour out upon him all the fury of his terrible anger against sin. His own eternal Father would pour upon him the fury of his terrible anger toward our sin. His own eternal Father was going to give him a sense of being forsaken. Withdraw from his consciousness all his fellowship and favor and concentrate upon him the terrible consciousness of his offended majesty and avenging justice. Jesus was about to experience the misery of one cast away from God. All the agony of damnation. Until he would cry out in the agony of his soul, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The wages of sin is death. You understand? That Gethsemane, Jesus had to endure alone. The cup of this suffering, Jesus had to drink alone. It's true, he took with him into the garden, three disciples. The three closest to him, Peter, James, and John. Why did he take them along? Because his human soul sought support from those closest to him. He lived in the consciousness that God has ordained the communion of saints a necessary part of this earthly sojourn. 
but even those closest to him could not enter his suffering. In his moment of deepest agony, these disciples could not watch with him for even one hour. They see only the very beginning of that awful struggle, and then an irresistible sleep falls over them. We could explain that sleep easily enough by the natural physical weakness of these men, but the fact is, it was the sleep of total inability to follow the Lord Jesus in the way of his agony. And that's how it had to be. God had to become flesh to bear the agony of God's infinite wrath in our place as our substitute because we could not bear that wrath. This truth also had been gradually revealed throughout Jesus' earthly ministry. You remember at the beginning of his ministry, there had been many disciples, many who followed him. Multitudes followed him across the Sea of Galilee after he fed the 5,000. They confessed they'd never seen anyone with such authority and power who spoke with such wisdom and authority. But then when Jesus pointed them to his suffering and taught them about the bread of life, who he is, and whom, of whom they must partake, they turned their backs and walked the other way. Then there were 12. Earlier this very evening, the number had been cut to 11 as Judas Iscariot had left them. Eight of them were left on the outskirts of the garden, unable to enter the suffering of their Lord, and in all, in but a few minutes, the three who remain are sound asleep. None can enter that oppressive suffering which marks Gethsemane for Jesus. The Savior must enter this final conflict alone. Man must be exposed as totally incapable of drinking this cup of suffering and resisting the evil one. And as would soon be repeated at the time of Jesus' arrest, when all his disciples run away, so also here, at the beginning of his final conflict, Jesus must stand all alone in order that the victory also be his alone. But the text sheds another light on this loneliness of Jesus in his suffering. The loneliness is emphasized in the preceding verse where we read that Jesus began to be sorrowful and very heavy. And the word translated heavy is a Greek word meaning away from one's people. That is, not at home. Which means in the garden, Jesus suffered being homesick for heaven, for glory for the fellowship of his Father. Sometimes 
Our children might go away for a brief time to family, relatives, and our young people move away from home, and they might become homesick. Well, in a very real sense, Jesus was homesick. Think of it. He had left heaven. He had laid aside, by all appearances, his divine glory and had willingly left the presence of his heavenly Father to carry out his divine purpose. But how unspeakably lonely he felt when he considered how much farther he had yet to go. He longed to return to the presence of his Father. You and I will never feel loneliness as Jesus felt it in Gethsemane. He tasted the depths of loneliness that that we might never be alone. He walked that way that he might abide with us forever comforting and strengthening us. Oppressive beyond description is the loneliness and suffering that Jesus began to experience in the Garden of Gethsemane. And under that burden and the anticipation of all the horrible suffering that lay before him, we hear him pour out his soul to his Father in an agonizing prayer, Oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. There is expressed in that fervent petition the agonizing tension between Christ's perfect will to obey the Father and the fear that gripped his own soul over what was to come. Notice there's not a hint of disobedience in that prayer. The tension expressed here is not a tension between obedience and disobedience. That could never be. The perfect servant of Jehovah is always in perfect harmony with his Father's will. And it's plain from many aspects of this passage that Jesus never wanted any other way than the pathway of obedience. The perfect love and unwavering obedience of Jesus appears throughout this account in Gethsemane. There is, for instance, the very fact that Jesus came to the Garden of Gethsemane this night. He knew very well that coming here would lead to the very depths of suffering Had he gone the way of disobedience, he might have gone any number of places other than the garden. There's also indication of his perfect obedience in the fact that he doesn't retreat from this place, even when the flood waters of his affliction threaten to swallow him. There's never one thought of acting contrary to the will of God. His way will be the way that God has appointed in perfect submission to the will of God. His perfect love and obedience is seen in the address of his prayer. My Father. That's the address of perfect obedience and submission. 
one who really says father to God, also desires that his will be done. And finally, there are the words of Jesus that express directly this submission and obedience. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Jesus doesn't desire any other way than that of obedience unto the end. There, but there, there's a pointed emphasis in the original, not I, but as thou wilt. But Jesus speaks here in his human nature. As a man, he had a human will and human desires, which were altogether natural. That doesn't mean they were in conflict with his father's will. But Jesus could desire that the terrible way before him not be necessary, that God appoint another way. And yet his perfect prayer to his father is that those natural desires not be considered, but only the will of his heavenly father. Jesus isn't praying here as we so often do, that God's will be subject to our will. Jesus prays, thy will be done. And may my will be thy will. And that's the crowning part of this prayer. Nevertheless, whatever I just prayed, not as I will, but as thou will. This prayer is the spiritual cry of the human nature caught in the struggle of unspeakable agony. Sure, Jesus knew there was no other way. He had spoken it repeatedly. He had interpreted the Old Testament scriptures at different times for his disciples, saying that the Son of Man must be betrayed and crucified and rise again the third day. For this purpose he came into the world, but now that he stood directly before that way, now that he saw the terrible reality as never before, now that he was beginning to experience the torments of hell, it was so very, very horrible. That bitter experience is quite different from the knowledge of something We get married, we know the day will come. When we are parted in death. It's one thing to know that. Quite another to experience. So it was with Jesus. He's like us in all things, sin except. The nearer his hour approached, the more it weighed upon his soul. Pain and death and sorrow are all contrary to the human nature. We recoil from them. We dread having to pass through them. But you and I will never understand how Jesus recoiled from the way of death 
knowing that he himself had done no wrong, knowing that for the guilt of his people, he would suffer in a way which no man could suffer. So perplexing and amazing is the load of his suffering. He would express a desire to be set free. If it be possible, if thou art willing, my Father, if it be possible in light of thy perfect will, let this cup pass from me. He doesn't ask God to excuse him from that way of obedience and suffering. But, if it be possible that there be another way, a less awful way, if it be possible that the same glory and redemption be accomplished in a way less terrible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. An agonizing prayer expressing the agony of Gethsemane. Does that agonizing prayer echo through your heart and soul? How terrible must be our sins. And how infinite must be the spotless holiness and righteousness of God. How infinite is his eternal love to save such sinners as we. For the comfort of his son, God gave an inescapable answer to this prayer. Heaven's silence. Silence. A clear testimony that Jesus must drink the cup set before him. As emphatic was the prayer, so emphatic was the answer. Three times the Lord sent his petition heavenward, returning to his disciples, coming back each time. Three times the prayers offered with the urgency of a soul oppressed and heavy with sorrow. Three times, silence. And for all the silence, the answer was clear. There's no other way for us to be saved. But not only was there silence, <clears throat> we read in verse 43, God sent an angel to strengthen him. That is verse 43 of Luke 22, parallel account. He gave his son the unmistakable testimony that he will be sustained in his suffering by strength from on high. And loved by his father all the way, though in the depths of his suffering, he would not experience his father's love. 
Gethsemane reveals there's no other way for us to be saved than the way of the cross. So dreadful, so damning, were the sins of his people that there was no other way than the way of the cross for Jesus to save them. Do you hear what Gethsemane preaches? If we would understand the exceeding sinfulness of sin, we must see our Savior's agony. In the second place, Gethsemane proclaims that the way out of those sins is none other than the way of faith. Faith which lays hold of this Jesus sent by God. Faith in this Christ who would fulfill all righteousness by his perfect obedience. Let us understand if there were no other way to fulfill all righteousness than the way of the cross, how could there be any other way of righteousness in life for us than faith in that Jesus who merited that righteousness by his perfect obedience on the cross? That's the only way of salvation, beloved. And finally, Gethsemane proclaims to all who believe that through the perfect obedience of the Son, Jehovah's good pleasure has been accomplished and fulfilled forever. The cup of his good pleasure was fulfilled when he put his servant to grief. And when his servant, his only begotten son, obediently offered his soul a sacrifice for our sins, his obedience was sufficient. Our salvation is accomplished. Gethsemane proclaims our salvation. Believe it. For there's no other way of salvation than that proclaimed at Gethsemane. Amen. Heavenly Father, we humble ourselves before thee in sorrow for our sins. And we thank thee for the wonder of thy love revealed to us in giving thine only begotten Son to the death of the cross to save us. Grant that we may rejoice in that salvation even in this week as we commemorate Christ's sacrifice, his substitution, his vicarious atonement for us and in our place. 
We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.